this this is uh, my last Sunday before I go on summer break, and we take a break from the Sermon on the Mount, sort of do a summer series, which we have uh, all lined up uh, already. Uh, But usually what I want to tell you about is uh, usually give you a little bit of a quick state of the union because this is two weeks or this is actually two months before our fiscal year ends. So kind of just want to give you a feel for where things are at. Obviously, we're in some, you know, unique uh, economic times and financial challenges with inflation, we're all feeling it, some of us more than others. Um, and we're also feeling it as a church. Uh, expenses higher, giving lower. So we're trying to manage that right now. And of course, we have always two concerns. If you're hurting and need help, we can provide it. Because you have given to a benevolence fund that right now is healthy. And that's all we would use that money for. And so it's available to help those in our congregation who might be hurting, uh, you know, particularly bad right now. So we do have that. Also, to let you know that we probably, I mean, it's very likely we won't meet budget. And so we're already making adjustments to that, not just for the end of this fiscal year, the next two months, but also for uh, next year. And so, uh, you know, we're prepared to make more, you know, as we need to. But if you're in a position to help us close out this year, that would be, uh, it would be helpful. Um, We were going to do a campaign in September for some things that we see upcoming. We're going to obviously postpone that for right now. If things turn around and we get to January and things look, that looks like a good time to do it, we will. If not, we'll, we'll do it later in 23. Always just you know, at the end of the day, waiting on God's timing and his provision. So that's, that's what we'll do. I'm sure that's what you're doing uh, as well. So I just wanted to give you that a little bit. When, when I come back, you know, one, of the, one of the major focus that I will have in the summer will be getting prepared for this last third section of Matthew 6 where we deal with the topic of anxiety and worry and things like that. Uh, so that, that will be part of my focus while, while I'm away and then we'll complete the Sermon on the Mount. I think we can finish it by the end of the year, but don't hold me to that. I'm not holding myself to it at all. So you might not want to either. So we will have the last half of chapter 6 and then all of chapter 7 when we get back. Uh, And, you know, I don't have any heartburn over that. There's a few things we need to address somewhere in there, and I'll break up the series and do that, you know, as as needed. So that will be the focus. All right. So let's go ahead and shift gears and get in. Uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, which we are, again, we are in the heart of it. And today we conclude the paragraph on treasures and money. Remember, Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to live in the kingdom, what it looks like to be in relationship to him, and that involves all areas of our lives. 
And uh, specifically, Jesus, in chapter 6 as a whole, addresses two human obsessions that have to be addressed when you come into the kingdom. This is one of the remarkable things about coming into the kingdom, is that you can't do it without addressing these things. Jesus knows that. And so he, he doesn't want you to use him and, and, and try to manipulate him the way we do every, all other things in our lives in order to uh, gain uh, s- status, in order to look good and get more. Okay? So he's got to address those. And so we looked at the status, and we looked at, and we are sort of beginning to look at stuff in this little paragraph that we're working with now. And what these reveal about the human condition uh, that operate very much at a deep level in us is this need for security and significance. That's what these are about. Uh, Meaning, in essence. get Meaning from those things. Sin has magnified that in all of us and disfigured them inside of of our souls. And so we fear not having either, uh, either, either being looked at a certain way by others or not having things. And we just feel insignificant and insecure. So we attach ourselves to the opinion of others and to things. Uh, Calvin Miller is the one who <laughs> I remember years ago referring to the soul as a junk receptacle. Uh, And we're like junk buyers. And he writes, this junk buyer in us hoards old values and ladens us with matchbooks and ticket stubs. He keeps the reminiscences of our most cherished moments and great exhilarations and tells us this kind of trivia is what matters. He preserves exact records of times when we found great meaning apart from God. And he sifts Gehenna daily for such trinkets as will amuse us. Well, Jesus knows this about us. And so what he offers in connection to him is... The only ultimate way to find both security and significance. So Jesus presents two realities and then escorts us into sort of the arenas that help deal with both of them. Uh, and maybe this is the best way to sort of give you. This is sort of how I've. Because this is how Jesus deals with it in chapter 6. So in chapter 6, the first half, dealing with status, Jesus sort of escorts us into interiority, into the deep, which we've spent a lot of time looking at. Now he's turning our attention to eternity. And so the interiority is how we deal with status. Remember what Jesus said? You, You get to your secret place. Run from that stuff. Run from the public view and get alone with me because I'm offering you a real, more substantive interior life, an intimate relationship with God that helps break dependence on others. 
We get our validation alone from him. If you don't go deep and inward alone with God, that's how you get it. On the other hand, as it relates to stuff and security, God offers a transcendent reference point, something out here for us. An out-of-this-world perspective where we find something that ultimately cannot be lost, and we see through the illusion of material things. Uh, so I, I love this image because Jesus sort of addresses uh, the full gamut of the kingdom. When you come into the kingdom, I'm going I'm to go as deep inside of your soul as possible, and I'm going to take you as far into eternity as possible. What I'm going to do is I'm going to open up basically God's full world to you. That's what's available in the kingdom to his followers. Uh, and it goes as deep as it can go and as far as it can go. And Jesus escorts us into both of those realities. And essentially, as we'll see, he frees us from all this exhausting activity to, him, to get validation, but he also frees us from paralyzing anxiety about what we do and don't have. So when we look at this text, this is the whole paragraph we've been looking at. It's got three parts, but essentially it's treasures and money are the central things. The first part is, Jesus told us, there are two kinds of treasures, uh, earthly and heavenly. And then he says there are two sort of perspectives, you know, an eye that can see and an eye that can't. When you come into the kingdom, you get an eye for those things in in eternity. And then we come to this next, next one where there's two masters. So you got two treasures, two perspectives, and two rulers, really, two, two masters down here, uh, which we'll see. So you got, you have the treasures tell you what the different things to value in the world are. You got earthly and eternal, heavenly. And then you have these two visions and perspectives. And then you have this last one, which has to do with masters. It has to do with loyalty, two kinds of loyalty. And uh, the first two are really nice. I mean, we love discussing. Let's, let's, let's philosophize about treasures. What are treasures and where are they? And, 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 we, and we can easily talk about vision and perspectives. There, you can get really philosophical on those. But in this last text... No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, and he will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. When you get to this one, there's no more philosophizing. <laughs> um, it becomes the determining factor. It presses you to decide. And it gets essentially to the nitty-gritty of discipleship. So if you're a person who likes to keep your options open. The kingdom will frustrate you. And you won't be fit for it. That's what he's saying. Uh, it could be this is as far as you go. I'll discuss treasures with you. 
Jesus. I'll dis discuss perspectives with you, but when push comes to shove, I'm out. And so this becomes really the, the key. So let's look at our text by itself. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So when we look at this text, uh, it might be helpful to see it like this. So you have no one can serve two masters at the top. We've all heard that, and we've all said it. And then at the bottom, you have this, you cannot serve God and money. These are the two, really, that get most of the attention from this text. We just don't forget those sayings. They're axiomatic principles. Uh, they're universally true. All right? And uh, it starts out with universally, no one can. And then it gets down to a little more personal, you can't. So it takes this axiomatic principle that we would all agree is true, and then it forces you to realize, yeah, that includes you. That includes me. Everybody serves something. Nobody serves more than one. There's your axiomatic principles. Um, it's really written for the people, which would be all of us, who think we can do both. So there's a couple of things to note in this text, and then we're just going to have a lot of fun together. It's last Sunday. Uh, under your seat are party hats and stuff. <laughs> so let's, are you ready to just reflect on this? All right. So Jesus identifies here that money's a legitimate threat, an idolatrous threat. Uh, and it appears that there's a very thin line, a very fine line between true worship of God and I the idolatrous worship of money. Very fine line. Money's personified as a rival God. Now, this is important because money has to be seen as very personal and very spiritual. You just can't ignore it. Uh, so this is a moment, really, where we, we just check our spirits and just ask. Just, just go ahead and ask yourself. Is it possible I'm worshiping the wrong one? Is that possible? Is it possible that I haven't really chosen one? I kind of like things about both of them. That's possible. And if I'm comfortable somehow, I haven't really chosen one. Uh, because that seems easier, doesn't it? Doesn't there's something inside you have been reflecting on this text for, for quite a while now. We've talked about it a little bit. It, 
It does seem like everything, everything inside of you says, man, I don't know about that. It just seems easier, more realistic, more practical, and more sensical to, to, to have both. That feeling wells up in you. But you get the feeling that Jesus is saying, no, that is not the case. Um, so what does having real clarity on this look like? Uh, well, let's spend some time here in the middle. Since in the middle is where we want to be. You want to be in the middle? <laughs> you want to be in the middle? All right. Let's go in the middle. So uh, I have it laid out like this because this is, this is called a, a chiasm. So you have, uh, let's put it like this. So you have A and A, and then you have B and B. You would expect these to be reversed, but he puts them like this where you've got these two here in the center, and usually in a chiasm, the center is what is the most important thing. But obviously, there's, there's a lot going on in this little statement, but it's not really the thing that comes to mind when you hear the phrase, you can't serve God in money. Uh, but it's just really a rhetorical contrast. Um, pitting emotionally, affectionately, uh, pitting these two realities, uh, these two extremes, uh, the reason why you can't have two masters, um, and why John White calls you spiritually neurotic if you try. Um, just always in stress, bouncing around these two realities, hate and devotion. And in the real world, when it comes to relationship, when it comes to worship, they just, they're, just, they're just not practical. They just really don't work. And um, so one of the things you'll see is the, the dynamic between the two, the difference between the two, and you realize that who, whichever master you're serving, they are not the same because one of them is going to create these different kinds of dynamics in you. Uh, and so one of them, obviously, Jesus has been saying, is an illusion. Well, of course, that's the money one. Um, and one of the ways, one of the ways we practically can agree with Jesus on that is that we constantly want more of whatever it is we get. It's never over. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It's never over. That's a signal. Something's wrong with whatever it promises because it's never enough. So if you serve money, if you choose money as your master, then you'll, you will find yourself wanting to impress people with what you have at some point. Money will, can make you do that. Um, and it'll be very subtle. It'll be very nuanced. You'll almost deny you're doing it. And you'll seek more because you gauge your self-worth on it. 
And once you start gauging your self-worth on it, well, then there's no limit to the amount of self-worth you can achieve by, you know, by getting more. And so you just, you just keep getting more. And then pretty soon you'll get more at all costs. This is what money does. You'll do anything to get it. Anything. Which can make you want to then hold on to what you have. So it shrivels. It can shrivel your heart a little bit. And then you'll obviously panic if you lose any. Because that's the only thing you could feel. If your significance is dropping and you're... Uh, you know, what you possess is you know, dwindling, then of course you'll panic. And then there'll be these moments, there'll, there'll be moments in your life, and every one of us have these moments too, where we go, gosh, it's exhausting never being satisfied. It's exhausting never being satisfied. And you ever just catch yourself and just say to yourself, I can't believe I want that. <laughs> Have you ever just been like sick of yourself? I can't believe I want that. If you come into the kingdom, money gets unmasked. Because what happens is when you have money, you feel in control. Really, it's controlling you. It becomes the master. You are the one being carried around. You're the one with all the emotion. You're the one with all the stress. You're the one. I mean, this is just a stressful picture. You're the one paying the price. You're not in control. You're being controlled. And so Jesus is trying to point out, you know, it's just all a hoax. Remember the uh, Aesop's fable, the dog in his shadow? Sure you do. You know, this dog has a, you know, his mutt has a little morsel of bone in his mouth. And he's prancing around. And he goes over a bridge and catches out of the corner of his eye his shadow. And so he starts to chase it around on the bridge, and it leads him to the edge of the bridge where he looks down into the water, sees his reflection. In other words, another dog with a bone in his mouth. And being greedy, he drops his bone and jumps into the water to get the bone, take the bone from the dog in the water. And while he's splashing around, another little creature comes around and grabs his little morsel and runs off with it. Uh, and then he just gets out of the water. You know, he's just all wet and hungry. And sort of the moral is beware lest you lose the substance while grasping at the shadows. That's all Jesus is trying to say. Uh, and Forbes magazine, in an article called uh, How to Think About Money, says, sooner or later, I expect Americans... This is funny because it's in Forbes. Sooner or later, I expect Americans to give up their comic faith in, in the miraculous power of money. Not for any preacher's reason. Thank you, Forbes. But because, as with any other neurosis... It's great he's using all these terms that Jesus is... 
referring to here. More people will come to appreciate that the substitution of shadow for substance, of illusion for reality, results in behavior idiotic and dangerous. That's all Jesus is saying. And for a guy in Forbes to say it. So money is sort of a poor master, obviously. But we also learned something with this little section here about the kinds of the demands of discipleship. The demands of discipleship are extremely high. And I guess we should make sure we're considering that before we choose it. Or you will just be a neurotic wreck when you get into the kingdom if you're trying to hold on to both. Go ahead and know up front. Discipleship is costly. Uh, and of course, what Jesus wants from us in this imagery of decision-making, which he uses uh, sort of periodically about discipleship, he'll use this about family, he'll use it about different things. I mean, there is, a, there is something about following Christ that is so far exceeds any other thing that it feels like uh, almost despising anything else because of this extreme value I put on following him. And, of course, these are words like love and devotion. This is following Jesus demands this kind of commitment and affection. So let's spend some time reflecting on uh, what that looks like, assuming you want to love Jesus more than anything, because that's the call. And, and... Be freed from everything we just described about letting money rule you. So, you know, obviously there's the kingdom parables. And this is it's just, it's a good picture. We probably ought to at least uh, see it. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden. When a man finds it, he covers it up, and in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has for it. This is the kingdom that Jesus is inviting us into. It's like, Jesus thinks it's a hidden treasure. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. I love that image. Who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's a powerful image. Because it gives you a picture of the state of mind that a person has to be in when he encounters Jesus in the invitation to come into the kingdom. Oh my gosh, I have found something that has never sounded like that. Right? So Willard points out that it, this is the condition of the soul of the person who chooses to follow Jesus into the kingdom. There's nothing I won't, there's nothing I won't sell for it. There's nothing I won't give up. It's that valuable to me. And so uh, he says, yeah, you sense the goodness to be achieved by that choice, the opportunity that would be missed if you were to not take it, the love for the value that is discovered and the excitement and joy over the entire opportunity. This is the condition of the person who decides to go into the kingdom. And I guess it's probably worth, I guess what it made me think about was, 
if you're a follower of Christ, do, do we really know what we have? Do we really know what we have? Do I, do I consider what I have in him something to treasure? Something extremely valuable that really is a treasure. And the kind of treasure you have that makes all other treasures feel like they're not really that valuable. How many times do you have that experience? Uh, so Annie Dillard has a, a short poem about the foolishness of trying to keep Jesus and mere dollars in the same safety deposit box. And I love it, and I've been reflecting on it kind of like I have the text. I thought it was so good. And she, she writes this, We keep our paper money shut in a box for fear of fire. Once we opened the box and Christ the Lamb stepped out and left his track of flame across the floor. Now, I'll just let you think about that for a second. Because if you, if you think about this poem for a week, more images will come into your mind about the, how phenomenal this is. About you have, you have, you have put your money in a in a firebox, and then you put Jesus in there too, and he's a fire. And he just burns it away. Why? Because he's just so much more valuable, and money is so much less of a sub substantial that it doesn't make any sense. You can't put them together because the one overtakes the other. It just can't work. It just can't work. And that helps us understand this image a little bit. It just, it just, you just can't put them together. And so I love that notion. That, this, that he has blazed this sort of new approach to life. That earth's value, valuables just aren't going to survive in his presence. Which means... You simply won't be able to treasure them the way you have always needed to with him in your life now. You just won't be able to do it. And so, uh, well, what do, we, what do we do with this? Um, so I want to give you a couple of things to reflect on. You know, I've taught this text before, and every, of course, every season or whenever it comes, it comes around, and you're in a different place, and you... You've learned different things, and so I want to talk to you about some things. I just haven't really verbalized. I don't think about this. Um, so I want to give you a, a couple things to reflect on and then a couple action points. Actually, it's only one action point. Um, uh, don't get excited. It's, it's sucky. All right. All right. Reflection. Uh, reflection. Let's do this. Okay, so here's the thing that I would say. So what does this mean if you really are serious about following Christ? And you go, man, I don't, wanna, I don't want both. Can you say that in your heart right now, just all by yourself? Can you say, I don't want to serve both of these? 
Okay, well then what am I going to have to do on a regular basis? What am I going to have to think about on a regular basis? Okay, well here's the first thing you're going to have to do. Is you're going to have to stop hearing in your head and believing money's the answer to everything. How many times do you say that or live by that philosophy that if I just had some money, these problems would go away? My life would be different. I'd be significant in everything. You say, I've got I've to process that statement because that cannot be true in light of what Jesus is saying. You'll fight that philosophy. And the reality is most of us believe that to be true. Money's the answer to everything. But as powerful as money is, that is an incredibly fragile promise. It cannot hold up. We could spend forever illustrating that. Um, so Richard War reflects on this so greatly in, in his book, Jesus, Jesus' Plan for a New World, which is on the Sermon on the Mount. It's a little different. Don't always recommend. Um, I don't even want to say that out loud. I won't do that. Don't, don't get that one. We'll discuss it. If you're interested in a book, I'll give you another one. I like, I like him, but he's, but he's out there. He's way out there. Um, so that's the first thing. Here's the, here, that's the first thing I've got to process on a regular basis. Here's the, here's the second reflection thing that I would say. Um, and I got this from Calvin Miller in his, in his book, which I, which I would recommend, uh, Into the Depths. Spirituality is most mature. Now, you just reflect on this. Spirituality is most mature when we arrive at a sense of abundance that's not related to the material. How many times do you feel like you are blessed like crazy regardless of how much you have? And see, Paul teaches us this, remember, where he says, I've learned in all situations to be content. Let me just point something out about this text. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know how to have plenty, and I know how to have, you know, abundance and need together. And then you have verse 13, which says, well, man, Paul, what's, you know, what's, what's the secret to that? Well, it's really, it's really through Christ, through him who strengthens me. I mean, it takes a certain kind of spiritual strength to be able to do this. And I love this whole idea of sort of need when I'm in need and when I have plenty. Do you know it's really hard to be content when you have needs, isn't it? It seems impossible. And, and I can tell you, when you have plenty, it's hard to be content there too. Because it's like, there could be more. And the more you get, the more you want. It's a 
sick cycle. So there's no easy spot to be content. No easy spot. And Paul is saying, I have found contentment in both of those. Well, what would it mean to find contentment here? And what would it mean to find contentment there? That's worth reflecting on. And of course, Jesus is the center of that. Somehow valuing him provides me the strength to to be less affected by what I do or don't have. And uh, and here's what I think it's going to end up meaning. So if you're needy right now, maybe one or two of you, um, you might... You might think to yourself, I don't feel helpless. If you were content with a bunch of needs, that would mean you don't feel helpless in your lack. Whatever Paul was trying to get across, he would certainly be saying that whatever contentment means, even though I need, I do not feel helpless. With Christ in my life, I don't feel helpless. And then on this side, I think, it means you desire less. You just desire less. That sense that I've, what else do we really need? Then on this other side, you just don't feel so helpless. That would be nice. There's some things to reflect on. Do I find myself saying money's everything? The answer to money is everything. The answer to everything is money. Or, um, or to sense abundance that has nothing to do with what I do or don't have. The truth is, for Americans, these are brand new feelings. I mean brand new. And I'm going to give you just one action point, if I can, and then one, one final picture. Uh, So I I remember the day in my life I had come to Christ. I would have said I was a that Jesus was in control of everything I had. I was obviously a high school kid, and then I was in college, and then married for a few years, and about to have a kid. I think we had moved into a house, and then that's when my by by that time my financial world was a wreck. We I hadn't made good decisions and uh, and I was thinking from this little last action point you know with that fine line between worshiping God and money uh, and here's the here's the great temptation for somebody who wants to be a faithful follower or faithful worshiper of Christ Um, 
right? I got to deal with it every day. It's literally in my pocket. And it's in my account. And I got to deal with it every day. can't get away from it. And I remember that it was overwhelming to finally, you know, get help. We had to get help. Somebody had to step into our lives and, and help us figure out what was going on. And so uh, I had a, a friend who was an accountant at the time, and she uh, took our checkbook and redid it. And that was the day, that was the week that Gail and I sat down and put a budget together. She had told me, your spending habits are horrible. Your saving habits are horrible. Your giving habits are horrible. This was a person who attended the church I was on staff at. It was humiliating and embarrassing. And I remember Gail and I sitting down, mourning the mistakes and everything turned around but one thing had to happen first. This is my action point for you in case you haven't done it yet. We had to put a budget together. I can't believe how many Christians I encounter that don't have a budget. How in the heck do you set limits on your spending? You can't come anywhere close to being this kind of person if you don't set limits on your spending and decide what kind of money is going to leave you ahead of time. This solves a hundred financial problems before I ever encounter them because I've decided them ahead of time. So, you've got to know where your money's going. You got to know what you're blowing it on, and you got to know if you're investing it in the kingdom. And if you can't answer those two questions really clearly and fast, then there's just no way you can wrap your head around this. No way you've understood money the way you should understand it. Uh, so, there's a you know there's 500 applications that you could give. I'm only giving you one today: a budget. And I'm not talking about, you know, the budget that floats around in your little head. I mean, a lot of people, yeah, I kind of have an idea. This is my son's for a little while. Yeah, I kind of have an idea. No ideas. Your ideas are horrible. Your ideas are horrible. I don't want ideas. Math isn't about ideas. (laughs) I don't want your ideas. I say that, really, math does have some idea stuff to it at least some levels of math. I never got to those levels. I'll just be honest. (laughs) But you don't need that level of math to solve this problem. It's just addition and subtraction. 
In the last three, four weeks I have had, more people call me and say, how do you put a budget together? Uh, So that's my application to you. If you can't answer both those questions, then there is no way you've solved this dilemma. You wouldn't know who you were worshiping or not. There's a math way to solve this at one level. Look at it. You hear that? Underscored music. You don't get that in every sermon. All right, final thought. Just listen to these words, and then I'll mention some in close. Jesus says to his disciples, this is in Matthew 19. Remember, the rich guy comes to him, and he wants to get into it. He's interested in the kingdom, but he's got a lot of stuff. And uh, he, he, Jesus says, well, you can't, go, you can't come in here and love all that stuff. You just can't. And the guy's really sad about that. But he's honest. And so he chooses to walk away from Jesus. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with a difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty remarkable statement. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. I mean, this, this Sermon on the Mount is an invitation into the kingdom, and Jesus is saying it's about the size of a needlehead. You know? <laughs> How do you get in there? The disciples hear this and they go, well, who can get in there? Who can get in there? And Jesus says, man can't do it. I'll tell you that right now. With God, it's possible. You're not getting in there without God. So the needle eye pictures this doorway into life, and it's really tiny. But we have a lot of stuff. And Jesus is essentially saying you can't bring your stuff with you. With a hole that size, you can't bring anything. You're lucky to get in there yourself. So this is obviously referring to that first decision where you decide to follow Christ. And the disciples even say, well, we've left everything and followed you. Speaking of that moment when they did it. And so maybe you're here and you've never made the decision you're like. You've never made the first commitment to follow Christ. And maybe you'd be even willing to say like this rich man, I'm just too attached to stuff. That's why I'm not going in the kingdom. Jesus would challenge you to rethink that. But for the rest of us, those who have at least seemingly come through the eye of that needle, laid everything down and went through the eye of that needle... Isn't it true that there are some times when God has to drag us back through that needle because along the way we just keep accumulating stuff and more stuff and we got to be drugged through that eye every now and then in our spiritual lives? Maybe you're in that moment right now where you've just picked up too much stuff along the way, attached yourself to too many things, you want too many things, and you can't step into the life he's calling you to because of it. Because you're too emotionally stressed out or you got other priorities. 
Maybe that's the challenge. You know what I watched this morning, really early for part of my quiet time? The one of that, that's that great scene in the movie The Jerk. I'll tell you what, you should YouTube it. He's lost everything, Steve Martin. He's lost it all. Now he's losing his wife. She kicks him out. He's in a bathrobe. He doesn't want any. He's lost everything, and he's overwhelmed, and he's leaving his house, remember? And he goes, I don't need anything. I don't need anything except this ashtray. This ashtray is all I need. And then it's a, you know, a little paddle ball game, and then it's a lamp and a chair. And by the time he's done, he's just carrying this. This is all I need, and that's it. And he walks out the door. It's just a phenomenal scene. It's us. We say we don't need anything, but we keep doing it. Pretty soon we can't fit in there anymore. God, God can't take, God can't bring us anywhere. Maybe that's you. Well, it's worth in the times that we live in right now. It's probably more in your mind. And maybe, can you say to Jesus right now, that's all I need? You bow your heads. Father, thank you for your word. Two treasures, two perspectives, two masters. We do not want to serve the wrong one. So open our eyes and hearts to these things. Help us to reflect and help us to act.